Welcome to the GamesNet Berlin Europe podcast. Here, we speak with extraordinary games industry professionals and listen to their story to learn all about what they've built and who they are. GamesNet Berlin Europe is the international games industry initiative of MediaNet Berlin Brandenburg, the networking association for the media, creative and digital industries in Germany's capital region. My name is Simon Oller and I will be your host for this program. Today, we are speaking with Jeva Benetzke. Jeva is a game designer and a team lead at Estoti in Vilnius, Lithuania. That's where she is from, and we spent a lot of time exploring the Lithuanian connection between Jeva and Florian. Florian used to live and work in Lithuania as well, leading the event Game On, and these two have a lot to share to give you and me a good picture of the country and its video game landscape. And then, of course, we cover Jeva's life, growing up in Lithuania, living off of pirated game copies, not having many people, but especially not other girls to game with, and then moving into game design as a career, learning, working hard, getting mentored, and also the troubles with that. Because there's something there, this uh, feeling of a lone wolf that really uh, resonated with me when I spoke to Jeva, something I personally know as well, and We have the privilege here to get a glance into Yeva's inner world and how she navigates life with this lone wolf property. To see what that means, or if you already resonate with that and you feel like that sometimes as well, you definitely don't want to miss this. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode and our conversation with Yeva Benetzke. Hello and good evening, everybody. Simon here with the GamesNet Berlin Europe podcast. And uh, yeah, I said good evening. Today's, today's episode has some special properties. Um, our guest today is Jeva Benetzke. And uh, yesterday was the Medianet Berlin Brandenburg Games Matchmaking Dinner. And we are in the presence of a video game mixologist. That's Jeva. She will tell us about that uh, in a moment. And the festive season is approaching. And uh, it's the first time we're recording an episode in the evening. All that calls. Uh, for a drink. So that's my little PSA today. Uh, we're having a drink together while we're recording this episode. Um, and so, hello, everybody. Um, <laughs> how are you tonight? And what are we having? Uh, Jeva, welcome. How are you? Hello. Um, thanks a lot again for inviting me to this podcast. Um, today, I'm just having some bourbon straight, really. On the rocks? Yes. Two rocks, actually. Two rocks, okay. Melting quickly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And Florian, welcome. Good evening. How are you and what are we having? I'm great and I'm having the typical Berlin Spedi beer, uh, Augustiner Boy Hell Lager. That sounds fantastic. And I'm having a Hendrix tonic um, with some cucumber, as is custom. So, uh, cheers, guys. And uh, I have a question for you, Yeva. What, what does a video game mixologist do? I think we could just start on that note. Wow. I mean, you just titled me that for the first time that anyone's done it. So, um, a little background, I guess. Um, I don't know. It maybe started a few years ago, maybe two, uh, when the first pandemic wave hit. And I was just at home thinking I should learn a new hobby. 
And at that time, I was playing Red Dead Redemption, and I found this collectible that included a recipe for a cocktail. And, you know, I looked at my home bar and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to try and make one. And I, I did. And then I made a whole story out of it. I made pictures and I actually posted it as a blog post. And like my friends really loved it. So I thought, oh, maybe that's a thread I can continue. Just like get inspired by video games to start making cocktails. So I kind of started learning mixology, but like through the lens of video games. It, it was a very interesting experience. I mean, people were really reacting to that very positively. And I had literally no idea what I was doing, just like mixing stuff that I heard people mix together, like in cocktail books and stuff. But I, at some point I hit this like milestone where I set so many expectations for myself of what the actual next drink from a video game should be that I kind of like started procrastinating and inventing like these mushroom vodkas that are steeped for 10 days with all kinds of herbs. So now I'm in a creative struggle for my next one. So kind of on a on pause right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. But so I'm on your website right now. Um, it's picobytes.com. So P-I-K-U bytes.com. Uh, yeah. And that's uh, if anybody's listening to this who wants to see these creations you can see them there very easily and uh, yeah they're very well photogra uh, photographed and they look really cool um and and is that the place where you usually share the your work your website or um can people follow you somewhere else as well where do you get in touch with people because you mentioned you got so many great reactions where where was that on which platforms yeah so th so that's the blog i've i haven't really kept it very active because like even a few years before then I had a hobby where I used to craft like miniature game characters or miniature food from this polymer clay. So I always have to like adopt some kind of new hobby, which usually doesn't like uh, retain for very long. But when I do it, I kind of share it on that blog. So I guess, uh, obviously I'm, I'm hoping to continue with my cocktail so you can find me on that blog and just follow it and, and you'll get newsletters and stuff. Um, I do have an Instagram and a, and a Twitter. I'm not very active there, but uh, yeah, you can find me. Just Google my name and it will link you to the username, I guess. Okay. Okay. Very nice. Very cool. Um, yeah. And I thought uh, the video game mixologist was an existing title. I didn't know I came up with that, but. I yeah, you, you just did. I will now use that as my, I don't know, LinkedIn. I mean, Possibly. I mean, it fits. Okay. Well, I thought uh, we could uh, start on, on, on that note. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about uh, more hobby, uh, obscure things later on. But, you know, I'm here today with the Lithuanian connection. Florian spent plenty of time in Lithuania. Yeva, you are from Lithuania. Um, I would like to leave it to you uh, professionals to catch up on the work stuff. So over to Florian. And I will be curiously listening um, about uh, your career and what what you have to tell in that department. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, so next to your mixologist job, I guess, your actual day job is game designer slash team lead as is Dottie in Vilnius. Uh, which is in Lithuania for those people who don't know, because we definitely have those people because that always happens. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, <laughs> but maybe about that a little bit later. So tell us a little bit about Estoti and the games they make. And since when you've been working there, just uh, draw a picture for us, please. Okay, so that's actually a very fresh position. It's my first position as an actual team lead. Before, I had been a game designer at a few companies as well in Lithuania, but like a game designer of different seniority levels. So um, what I wanted at this point was a change to a more like people-focused and process-focused position. So now I kind of try to teach my game design skills maybe to others, not as much do it as in my day job. But yeah, I started at Astodi uh, a month ago now, actually. So like I said, kind of fresh. Um, uh, the company had mostly been making hyper-casual games, but now we're scaling up to casual and mid-core and have plenty of ambitions in the future. Um, yeah, our company is very team-driven, very collaboratively driven as well. Uh, we don't hand down decisions. We discuss them as a team and I mean everyone understands the business goals the design goals and we try to just get everyone on board to kind of I don't know share the same vision for the future I guess so kind of glad I'm helping to build that up too right now mm -hmm. and how many people work there uh, we have under 50 now uh, in Vilnius office because we're we're part of a larger Estoti company which mm -hmm. is also based in Latvia, but we have a strong Vilnius branch that I'm at right now. So, All right. So before that, you've worked at different other Lithuanian companies and uh, you are also now uh, the chairperson, chairwoman of the LJKA, which is the Game Developers Association uh, in Lithuania. Yes, so tell us a little bit more about the actual game development landscape in Lithuania um, and yeah, what kind of other companies are there, if you have some info. Yeah, yeah, obviously. Um, uh, in a nutshell, uh, the industry, the game developers industry in Lithuania has been uh, growing very rapidly during this last few years. Um, most, of the, most of the time... In the past, we were very mobile focused, mostly because of its accessibility and the types of talent we have locally. So the most profitable and most successful companies that were able to scale were usually uh, targeted to mobile free-to-play. But we've also had a few success stories with, uh, let's say, very indie developers, maybe even one-man teams, which managed to scale their product to international um, ranges and uh, one of those is i guess is no break games with a human fall flat which is a real success story for lithuania um so we do have quite a few strong indie developers but most of what we're doing in lithuania is mobile uh we've recently also had a wargaming come into vilnius and open up a branch there so that's gonna kind of change our landscape of the industry i think for the upcoming few years quite a lot But, I mean, there's a lot of interest. There's basically trends and graphs that are going up at all times. Uh, it's a nice space for investments. It's uh, like we're growing our own talent most of the time because in terms of educational systems, there's not always that much uh, 
let's say, formal programs that can teach you very strong skills that are targeted towards game dev. So most of our senior professionals at this point are self-taught, especially if we're talking about game designers. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of potential, so we're getting more investments, more funding, more companies, and uh, even more clients from the West that obviously because of NDA reasons um, I cannot disclose, but... um, Lithuania at this point is seen as a very, very promising workforce and a creatively driven place for game development. Yeah, that definitely resonates with the picture I have from living there. So we're now, I think, on the 11th episode of this podcast. And I wouldn't say we are that famous. So probably people haven't listened to each episode yet. So I lived in Lithuania for two years. It has come up before, but yeah, I used to live there until 2020 and worked on Game On, the, which was the uh, industry event slash also gaming event for kids and families, basically mm-hmm. the biggest games event in the Baltics. So that's how we met. Simon actually asked me uh, leading up to this if I remember where exactly we met, but I deferred to saying it must have been at the first uh, meeting of the Game Dev Association I went to. Yeah, I think it was in, in that kind of context, yeah. yeah. Discussing association stuff, for sure. Yeah. I think you guys were just drunk and can't remember. Uh, let the story stay true to the association version. Yes. Okay, sure. <laughs> We have an association with that evening, you know. Association stuff. That's <laughs> it. <laughs> it's, it sounds like some something like a secret association, like a back room, uh, uh, wooden walls, uh, smoky rooms, dark, you know, kind of. Uh, it does sound like that, doesn't it? I mean, the word association also carries this kind of like it's a private club, you know, it's an association, you have to join it. And that's something we're also trying to fix in the local context that, you know, anyone can contribute to our game dev goals. And, you know, we don't see each other as competitors. It's a small country. It's even a smaller community of game devs. So we have to, you know, come together and lift each other up. We don't, we don't necessarily need like, separate elite clubs of cigars and associations and bourbons to, on the rocks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you don't mind me asking, what was this association about? I mean, you can't explain it, but what are you guys working on there? Um, yeah. Maybe you want, you guys are going to talk about this more, probably Lithuania, but I thought maybe I can ask what, what is that about? What are you trying to accomplish as a, as this, uh, altogether club that you just explained? Well, you know, it, On a grand scale, the goal is just to scale the Lithuanian game dev industry in terms of talent and in terms of investment. So just like grow together. And to do that, we have different types of work groups. We have the education work group. We have the funding. We have accelerator. We have events. So basically just covering a whole different areas that can help us uh, bring awareness, uh, not only like locally, but also internationally. Um, what Lithuanian game dev is and what it can offer. So we can get opportunities to train our people, train potential talent, grow new talent, get investments, get new companies collaborating, get new companies moving here and acquiring new talent. So 
Um, we're trying to just cover all bases at once and trying to maybe identify the strongest funnels, the strongest things that will help us grow to the level, for example, in which maybe the Swedish, the Finnish game dev industry have, right? So we're setting our goals uh, for the upcoming years and just trying to find the best ways to do it, really. It's all voluntary. It's Nobody's really getting paid for it. We're, we're just very ideologically driven because, like I said, it's a small country. It's a small community. So nobody's going to vouch for us. You know, we have to kind of DIY it. Yeah, that's actually... I, I love that description um, because when I came there, obviously I I knew what associations do in general, from other countries, especially in Germany. And also, obviously, this is podcast is also part of a project that's run by an association here in Berlin. So going there and just meeting new people was a no-brainer just to see like who's, who's uh, in the scene, who's active, how to meet people. So that's always good. Like if you come to a new city, to a new country, whatever, and are in the games industry, look for meetings, look for associations, places you can like uh, find and connect with people. I think that helps a lot. And uh, like to integrate in, into what's happening there. And uh, I, this, like this, enthusiast mindset really is what also made me fall in love with the whole uh, club or whatever, or like <laughs> in general, the whole of Lithuania in a way, because obviously moving there, I got very quickly co-opted into just like uh, basically impersonating Lithuania in a way, because there was no other way to represent game on because my uh, role there was for, uh, to make the convention or the event more internationally known mm -hmm. so of course going to the to the uh, association meeting people there understanding more about the culture of Lithuania and and how things are going there i felt like i i was uh, like quickly becoming like sort of a Lithuanian ambassador in a way, but always yeah. having to say that I'm actually, I, I just moved here. <laughs> but yeah, it, it felt really like it's a small place. So you you you, you sort of, I, I really felt it, for me, it was very fast that I felt like kind of ownership or like like belonging in a way that I had to represent this country now when I go to an international event. It's not only I'm representing an event or a company, like we're here to make Lithuania better. So funny. This is so <laughs> yeah, funny. Yo, you, yeah. you have to explain that a little bit, please. Like, how did you begin, and please both of you, but how did you begin impersonating Lithuania? You know, how could you <laughs> adopt this cloak of culture? I'm so in interested. I know very little about your country and Yeah, please, uh, Florian, but both of you, tell me about that. How, how, what is that like? What what did you feel like you had to adopt when when that began? Well, I mean, it's it's what Eva said. It's it's the small country. So first of all, it's I'm I live now in Berlin for the first time, and sometimes it really feels not only in terms of like the number of people living in Lithuania and Berlin being quite similar that 
getting through Berlin from one end to the other for a meeting sometimes feels like going from Vilnius to Konas, basically, which are two different cities in Lithuania and the biggest two. So it's a small country and you, at least if you're active, you start to get quickly into meeting all the people and just like understanding how driven they are about, about tech definitely uh, in, in a broader sense, but also uh, games specifically in, in our case. And it's a small community uh, still, but it's always growing. They had the first hit. And for me, it always like having this role of moving there and becoming sort of this, my, my title was brand ambassador of, of game on when I moved there. So basically to, to um, represent the company Uh, at international events. But what I said before, it's always the same. So you tell about the event and then you, it, it doesn't help only explaining like we have this event because first of all, you have to explain like it's in Vilnius and that is in Lithuania and Lithuania, where is that in Europe? And <laughs> so it, it's, it becomes yeah. this thing like they're, they're, people will always ask. And actually they, they, over the last years, I am super proud Although it's not even my country, but I'm super proud about how Lithuanian uh, marketing uh, is going about. Like the like Vilnius is doing that a lot. Like where's Lithuania? Where's Vilnius? They they always have clever uh, marketing for making something out of being small. I really dig it. Absolutely. Um, what are the what are like the I don't know, top three qualities of Lithuanians or something, or the looking for something really snappy here. I don't know, Yeva, maybe oh, you can. God. I hate those because I know I have to rely on stereotypes, which I'm not even going to voice. Okay, sure. Um, but I like what Florian actually said, because we always try to make the best of something really small. Like we find this little quality that we market. Um, I think the last marketing thing that we had for, for Vilnius or for Lithuania, I'm not actually sure at this point, but that uh, Lithuania is the, the G-spot of Europe because it is said that geographically we're like at the center and we had a whole marketing campaign based on just that. And it actually got a lot of traction, which was funny because like if you do the math, it's probably not true, but for marketing purposes, it worked. It's pretty good. Yeah, yeah but it, yeah, it also claimed basically that once you find it or something, it was based like that. But I mean, I wish game dev would, you know, take some risks and maybe just, because we, we always try to sound very professional as an industry, maybe at, even as association, you know, people should take it seriously because we do stuff <laughs> and we, business stuff. But, you know, sometimes just appealing to just the general public is okay, I think, as well. So, you know, no, nobody knows. Sorry, nobody knows yeah. where it is, but when you find it, it's amazing. Yeah, the G yeah. spot exactly. of Europe. Yeah. That's, yeah. The co that's a copy. Yeah, that's, yeah. So that's good. a copy. And there, yeah. there is a picture of of a woman, and you can only see her hair, her furrowed brow, and she's grabbing a sheet, which is the map. And she's grabbing yeah. it with Lithuania's. Fantastic. That's worth Googling, worth looking up. Ah, oh, that's so funny. Yes. And, Can't and believe that. And, and the thing, what Sense makes of it, humor and, seems to be a quality. Sorry. Yes, yes, definitely. And the, and the thing that makes it Lithuanian again for me is like, 
obviously, I don't know if Eva knows, but I know the person who wrote that copy. <laughs> so oh, okay. there aren't that many people. <laughs> No, they're not. They're not. <laughs> and that's why it makes us, uh, we're a very, I would say we're a very anxious nation, like, because there's not so many of us. So the ones that represent have to represent for real. I mean, yeah. you cannot just wing it. So if you know the person who wrote the copy, I'm not at all surprised because it should have been someone, you know. Yeah. So yeah, so so definitely, if if uh, during the time there, I definitely felt like a, like I said, like an ambassador of Lithuania. I'm, I'm, at this point, maybe I'm still an honorary one. I don't know, but I try to think of putting Lithuania in the context of conversations whenever yeah. I can. <laughs> yeah, and I always uh, thought, you know, thought when we got to know each other that, oh wait, I, I can't exactly remember, you know. Florian lived there, but is he also from there? You know, you, he might be Eastern European. I'm not exactly sure, you know. So mm. so I think you carried it with you very strongly because, you know, I, it kind of vibed over towards me, even though that, even though, you know, um, yeah. I guess you, you aren't technically, but the, you're still wearing the cloak. I think that's really cool and funny. Don't ask me to speak the language, though, because no. I'm very surprised you didn't learn to, like, I mean... What, what? I would have expected you. You would at least be forced to know a few stock phrases. Like, I mean, my, my. I know. First of all, it's a very complicated language. It it's, is. To give some context, it's an Indo-European language, right? Yeah. And the closest connection to it is Sanskrit. So, I don't know any reference to that so it's really hard to get like into a language like that and yeah enough of the excuses you could yeah, have yeah, acquired look, some look, basic look, look, phrases look. like when uh, i arrived i was beer, like please. i have to immerse myself like i teach me lithuanian people and others from the team were looking at me and like are you insane why would you do that there's no sense in learning lithuanian there's so few people speaking it And you won't stay here for very long. And I was like, <laughs> I just arrived. Thanks. <laughs> like, yeah, that, I can hear that's another trait of Lithuanian people. We're just like, we're not very optimistic, are we? We're just like, what's the point? Yeah. What's the point in doing anything? That's, I think that's part <laughs> of our mindset as well. <laughs> I've, 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 yeah. Yeah, I've come across that a yeah. lot. Yeah. Yeah, no, but I mean, I, I could read the menus while I was there. And since I don't eat meat, I, I quickly figured out that stuff like Vistiena and that kind of thing I, I have to stay, steer clear of when I order something. Uh, so obviously you pick up some stuff, but yeah, it's just, it's just hard. If you don't know the structure of the language, then you only know some words and then you can't put context to them. You can only like, When you read them, you understand what's like yeah. what's happening. But like, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm I'm usually pretty good with languages. But for this one, it was hard. And I've lived there for a little bit over two years, so I know people who've lived there way longer than me and haven't learned it yet. So I always have that excuse as well. Good excuses, Florian. Great. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And English yeah, was all, people were speaking great English there. 
Yeah, I, and I, 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 I think that's sorry. the reason why you managed to stay yes. in the association and be quite an active member of it because we could we could adapt to international languages and international mindsets so easily. I think that's also one of our traits that we know we're small. We know we had been dependent on other countries historically a lot, so kind of adaptable because of that. Obviously, we're still shaping our own identity, but at the same time, we can be very welcoming when we have to be. So, yeah. Eva, an another um, top three question, and you don't have to say top three, um, but top three reasons why people should come um, to Lithuania and work there or, or you know... Um, Move, move part of their company there or, or hire from there or, you know, whatever your agenda with your club is um, to <laughs> further <laughs> do oh, advertise wow. a little bit. Yeah, I, I would be curious. Oh, that's difficult. Well, okay. One of the reasons are that, uh, okay, the people who, work, who do work in game development here or the, those who want to build a career in game development, they are very driven. They do realize that it's do or die that, you know, it's not a disposable job, that it's not a disposable track of career that you can try out, maybe then go back to marketing or maybe go back to something else. People really do give a bleep about game dev, the ones who are in it. So if you do move your branch or if you want to acquire talent, uh, most of the time you will get people who are very motivated to deliver the best work they can deliver to learn what they can, to teach you what they have known through their experiences. So I think the talent here is very strong. It's just been unadvertised, unmarketed, and mostly unnoticed. Maybe sometimes we've only put, been put in the category of like cheap outsourcing, which is absolutely not the case with the people I have known in my career. So that's one. If you want professionals, because you they know that they're here and they know if you want if they want to make it, they have to be good at their jobs. They cannot just wing it. So they're gonna do their best. Um, the other, I guess, it's a small country, right? And we do only have like a few major cities that are more like IT tech startup driven. Um, but it, like Vilnius, the capital that I work and live in. Uh, It's very small, but it has a very healthy landscape. We have a lot of, even we have unicorns, we have great businesses, we have growing startups. So I think uh, it's also a very dynamic uh, environment. So there's a lot of potential here, not only for game dev, but whatever IT business you, you would like to maybe invest in, maybe grow, maybe scale. I don't know, maybe I'll just open a tiny brand, see what happens. So... Yeah, I don't know if that's that's not top two, but it's something. Cool, cool, cool. Nice. And um, just a quick follow up to that: what, where do people get in touch, or who should people get in touch with, or where should people go look to find talent if they were like, okay, maybe she's right, let me have a look. Um, yeah, where do they go? Uh, if you're talking about game dev, right? Yeah, I mean, what what you just talked about, both yeah. like. Yeah, mm -hmm. who can show okay, the way? So, yeah, so we, as the Lithuanian Game Developers Association, we try to bring all the companies together so you can find them on our website, which is at this point uh, LZ, LZDA, 
dot lt uh, but we'll have an english version up soon so that's going to list all the companies that are currently in lithuania but if you're trying to establish something new i don't think that should be like a reference point because unless you're trying to poach our talent which we do not appreciate at all <laughs> <laughs> so um but yeah i i mean it will give you the basic overview of how many professionals we have working at the industry right now, what are the profits, what are the growth uh, KPIs, let's say. So we, we do have some info. I mean, you can reach out directly to me. We'll share some more of our presentations that we've maybe given to other representatives just to show how the industry is growing and if you see any potential in collaborating or investing here. So. And I think I, sorry, I need to correct the URL I think you mentioned. So I think it's lzka.lt. Um, yeah. I think you said something else, but lzka.lt, that's where you yeah, find it. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, game I Because okay, I, cool, I was cool. trying to translate to English in my head, but at the same time thinking Lithuanian, so that bilingual <laughs> thing didn't, yeah, yeah. didn't really work. I thought so, I thought so. Okay, <laughs> Yeah. cool. Yes, Thank you. Simon, I'm shutting down this line of questioning now because... Otherwise, I will probably even send this episode afterwards to, to the agencies there, like Invest Lithuania and Go Vilnius, just to collect a fee for marketing everything there, although I don't live there anymore. Yeah. You but should. I play for another team now. Berlin is where it's at. So, okay. <laughs> no. We Shut can't. it down, man. Shut it down. Uh, no we worry. can cut this part when he said Berlin is where it's at. <laughs> Vilnius is where it's at. You heard it. Very meta, this episode. I like it. Okay. Um, yes, but we can stay in Lithuania for a little longer, uh, but the advertisement is over now. I just want to uh, ask a little bit more about if you could share uh, how it is to grow up in Lithuania, because I think that's also something that, um, like, the guests we had so far are from Western Europe, mostly or um, with an Arabic background, but we had no one from your region. So yeah, maybe share a little bit about yeah growing up there, what it's been like. It's a, it's a very interesting spot uh, mm -hmm. geopolitically. And how yeah. it was for you specifically, right? Yeah. Not in general. How was it for you? Yeah. Yeah. That's a very good point, Simon, because I mean, uh, I'm, Personally, like I'm 33 and I'm at that point generationally where there was a split of generations before the Soviet, post-Soviet generation. And then the Lithuania that was kind of trying to find its own identity after we've been uh, liberated, after we've became completely independent and maybe started adopting the values from the Western world more so, especially the younger generation. So... Obviously, I don't want to be a token and spoke for like all the generations and all the Lithuanians. Mm -hmm. I can only maybe um, say my own subjective experience, which I think uh, the childhood and the early teenage years were mostly kind of trying to climb out of that post-Soviet mindset where everyone was supposed to be very uniform, very uh, by the book you know, any kind of deviation from the norm or deviation from what the state thought was acceptable was basically unacceptable. And sorry, is that what you thought as a kid? Were you like, ah, I gotta, I gotta 
Oh no! I'm out of the post-Soviet no, mindset. No. Oh yeah, that's okay. It's just that's That's imagination. Eight-year-old no. Yevas. Man, like, this post-Soviet mindset is really killing me. I gotta get out okay. of here. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well. well. <laughs> Absolutely. While I was eating dirt and leveling up my characters in World of Warcraft, I was thinking, man, this existential dread, I cannot deal. <laughs> no, absolutely not. I don't know how to reflect on my childhood from the perspective where at this point I'm an adult. But yeah, I mean, climbing trees and eating dirt and playing heroes of the of might and magic it was my childhood, I guess, you know, jumping ropes and... Uh, it was innocent days, I think. Uh, you know, we we were on the threshold where all the technology was accelerating very fast. We got our first PC, we got the internet, we got the dial-up, then we got our first games, which also, it's a very interesting fact, uh, were not English at all. They were either like pirate, pirate, like pirate versions, ripped discs that we would buy in these cheap markets for dubious prices and like, photocopied covers for those CDs and you know we would take those as the real thing you know oh right I'm buying Might and Magic so that's the real thing that the developers made no you know it's it's a copy that's been pirated and localized but we didn't even know that there were originals that there were people who actually made those games we were so so far away from like the means of our production like what game development even is and I think that also kind of set new barriers for people who wanted to become game developers. I don't think they wanted to because I think that they thought that, you know, they, those games were being made on Mars or something. Like, it was so distant. We were consumers, but like second-grade consumers even of pirated versions. And for a very long time, like, pirated uh, games were a big part of Lithuanian game culture overall. I think only when our maybe like life quality starts to increase our salaries, ex salaries accelerated that people actually thought, you know what, buying games from the actual people who made it is okay. And it's encouraged. And it's something that we should all do. Like it took a long way to get there. And I think even at this point, some people still think that, you know, why should I pay for games? Like, what is this? You know, people made them, but it doesn't mean I should pay for them in, in any way. So mm. I think we lived in this mindset for a very long time as well. Like, I, I didn't know where my games came from. I just thought, okay, someone ripped it for me. My friends ripped it for me. So let's go. Yeah, I didn't know the people. I didn't know the game dev was a thing at all. So it's a very strange time when I look back on it now. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely that thing it was in Germany as well. It, it probably happened a little bit on a different uh, time frame uh, than in Lithuania. And uh, but obviously, people here also traded the CDs on the on the schoolyard and everything. So there are these stories still. And actually, that's something I didn't think to bring this topic up at all. But something that just popped into my head because I spoke about this at the dinner yesterday with somebody about uh, copied uh, games and everything and how it's become so super convenient now that basically, first of all, everything is online all the time or is only playable online. 
plus there's so many streaming services and whatever for each kind of medium that piracy, at least here in in Germany, has become like very useless in a way because people are just, they just got over this hump of like accepting that, well, it's a lot easier and like so convenient to just pay a few bucks per month and just yeah. have it at your fingertip and everything's so convenient. Uh, so that was very interesting, obviously, that the discussions we used to have about how piracy is destroying everything uh, in, in the industry and there would be so many more sales without uh, piracy. Uh, I think they never held water if you look at it re retrospectively. Yeah, I... I mean, uh, I can tell from my own experience, because I guess that's going to be at least generalizing that I can be at this point, is that before I started my career at game dev, I would also pirate a lot of games. And mm -hmm. that wasn't even like 10 years ago. I would say it was eight years ago. I would go onto this website. I would download all the all the pirated games really just use daemon tools and just mount the things and just play them as we all and, did yeah and i didn't see a problem in that at all mm -hmm. up until i started working in game development mm -hmm. and i think at that point i realized that you know there's actual people making those games there's actually processes and there's so much stress and so much pressure just to release something And yes. that brought to me a certain kind of empathy. And I think a month into my first like junior game design job, I started buying all the games I had ever pirated. And oh, wow. from that point on, I had never downloaded a game illegally. Like I completely started buying because I literally got into the shoes of the people making mm -hmm. those games. And I realized, oh my God, this is so unfair that I'm just, literally ripping these people off and they're working overtime they pouring their hearts into this and i'm just like not giving them a penny yeah so that is, was a completely mindset shift for me yeah i i know what you mean i think that's i i would assume i haven't spoken about this specifically with people um but from my own experience as well i think that this is something that You, I mean, you always know it's wrong in a way, but you're young and it's it's what people do, so you don't care. But yeah. as soon as you understand, and that's not only about pirating games, it's about everything. As soon as you understand that there is an industry behind games and it's not just something that that like comes to you in whatever way and you you consume it, uh, that there are people working and how how that there are even jobs because like right now from our perspective, we are always going to people still having to explain like there's an industry, you know, this is good for, for the economy. You should help um, uh, the games industry um, survive and like grow in, in your, in your area. If we're talking about here, like lobbying work also with the association um, because you still have to somewhat explain that to people but you become very immersed into that culture. You quickly understand like how many people are behind this and what, what's like. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, and you know, the, I think another thing is also that as kids, we were just broke, you know, and um, yeah, of course. then it's so good to have this medium, same with music that uh, then existed digitally, or at least in like copyable mm. mediums. 
and um, well, you you had a- access to it. And I think you know, um, there's also another side to it. You guys yeah. are obviously completely right. The other side is like, well, the artist is happy when his art reaches people, um, and especially you know the kids, and they they need the art. You know, I. I needed to listen to Eminem when I was 10 or, or something, you know, that was important. And um, I needed to play these games yeah. when, when I was young. And so that's why I wanted to ask, what was the meaning of games, Yeva, in, in Lithuania? Because you said, well, there was a lot of culture around it and people were buying these, um, well, these ripped games, but they were still buying them or sharing them. And especially given the post-Soviet struggle, <laughs> seriously, actually, I mean, what what kind of meaning could you derive from from gaming back in the youth? Obviously, once again, I don't want to speak for the whole nation. No, I'm because, asking you. Yeah. <laughs> I can only assume, right? Because as a kid, uh, me personally, I didn't have many friends that were gamers. Uh, obviously, partially it's a consequence of me being a girl. So I didn't like have a girl gang of gamers. I used to play games with a few of my neighbors and my brother just locally. So I didn't have like a larger landscape, which I think many of the boys growing up here did, where they would go to these like dusky PC rooms where they would pay certain amount of money to play games for a few hours because like having your own personal computer at that time was, was a luxury. So they had to gather somewhere else just to have a, like an hour of, of whatever, a match they wanted of Counter-Strike or whatever. Um, but I think like the motivations were largely as they are today. It's, it's, you know, just escaping into some kind of fantasy. It's bonding with your friends over an experience. I think that's a lifeless, like, like that's, that's, that's a universal thing. That's not going to change across generations. Like why we play games. It's, it's uh, from one perspective it's very subjective we can always find our own reasons why we do that but despite how the genres or how the landscapes have changed people have played games for the same reasons because we we enjoy play we enjoy escaping we enjoy immersing ourselves into alternate personas we enjoy connecting with other people maybe finding ways we don't find to connect in real life so that's what gaming has been for me. And I mean, it's gotten me over quite a few struggles as a teenager as well. Maybe I was finding it difficult to connect with real people or the peers that I have in my school or maybe in my neighborhood. And then, you know, voila, across games, I find the people who think the way I do and who enjoy the same things. So I stay online all the time. I, I like to play games. So, because in Lithuania, I think the selection of games uh, maybe 10 years ago was very, very limited. So we kind of have this shared consciousness of the games we had all played in the 90s, uh, which brings out a lot of nostalgia, a lot of like this kind of shared consciousness that, oh, you know, remember the time in Heroes of Might and Magic and like, yeah, everyone played that or like Counter-Strike, like Doom, because... You know, obviously, just like with vinyls and music and film, we didn't have much access. So whatever whatever we did get, everyone had that. So it's a very strong bonding experience, I think. Nice. Ah, good old times. Yeah. Now I'm thinking about uh, playing games as a kid. 
Remember? Remember playing Remember? games in a kid? Remember GTA San Andreas? <laughs> Remember Heroes of Might and Magic? Remember? I remember yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast. I don't know today. Yeah, we're we're in a different mood today. I like it. Um, yeah, but let's switch gears a little bit and go towards you as a professional again. So we uh, spoke as with every guest in a short pre-interview. And one of the points that I wanted us to talk about today is uh, your take on learning and mentorship, because, yeah, mm -hmm. as you mentioned for you, that was kind of a struggle as somebody who came into the industry, not being a uh, like a programmer or somebody who had learned a specific game task. So, yeah. Tell us a little bit about your experience in terms of learning your craft and how you've fared with being mentored and now mentoring people. Yeah. Um, well, I think it all started, uh, basically, I do have a major in like English. So that's like literature and linguistics, things like that. And I kind of took that road because it came naturally to me because I'm really bad at maths. So I thought, okay, that's the other road. I take letters. I don't take numbers. <laughs> I know, yeah. you know, a kid, what can you do? You have to choose yeah. TikTok. You have to choose your career. So that's what I did. But like, I kept working all jobs that had to deal with letters, so like copywriting, translation and stuff. And I always kept thinking about like, oh, you know, I wish I could make games. But like based on the way we were playing and based on the things that we were exposed to in Lithuania, it seemed that, you know, games are only made like far, far away, like in the USA or I don't know, like I said, on Mars. And it seemed like a, such a distant universe to me. But then I thought, you know, I have to start somehow. And I started looking up like Lithuanian companies and just applying for game design jobs, which at that point only needed like very generalist knowledge of maybe organic experiences from being a gamer, which is you understand the systems, you understand the UX, maybe you understand the components that make a good game. Maybe you don't have the theoretical knowledge or you cannot explain it in very academic terms, but you know the gist, you know when, when it feels wrong, you know when the feature is lacking or something like that. So based on those assumptions, I did apply for my first game design job and I got it. And yeah, that's where my journey began. Uh, obviously, I struggled uh, maybe internally because obviously imposter syndrome hit me. <laughs> Day one, new at this job, no prior yeah. experience, a woman amongst like 90% of men in the company at that point, maybe even 95. So it was stressful. But uh, what I did after work, I would just, you know, come, come home and read all these like game design books and watch all these GDC talks, just trying to catch up for my next day. You know, so I don't come in and sound like a complete noob, you know, discussing the name, new game design document or whatever. Um, but, you know, because like I mentioned before, we're a very homegrown industry, which means like we grow our own professionals organically from from the experience that they get from building the games. It's not like you can complete 
like four years bachelor's in game design here in Lithuania. It's not a thing. So you either learn on your own or by getting actual experience in a company, which is what I did. So uh, at that point, I was really struggling to find mentors that would, you know, give me the knowledge I had or just like guide me. And I don't mean like Jira tasks that, you know, give me work to do that I had like at any mm-hmm. point, but like, tell me what to read, tell me uh, which references to look at, tell me like how to maybe adopt a certain mindset that I do need to adopt for the for this industry. So most of my career, I realized that, you know, I had to make it on my own. I had to like put in 110% if I want to ever make it to like an executive position to a lead position. And, you know, I made it actually. And at this point, I'm, I have quite a, quite a lot of knowledge. I think quite a lot of mistakes I've, I've made along the way. Maybe I've seen other people make mistakes and, you know, analyze those had a relative success stories. And at this point, I feel like, you know, I want to be the person who can mentor those who maybe felt in the same way I did six years ago, and I can hand them the knowledge that I now have, maybe, you know, get, show them some shortcuts, tell them, maybe even give them some reality checks. I mean, because that's also a thing that I had when I started out, you know, I was a dreamer. And I don't mean like that I'm not a dreamer now. I just have a lot more context of how this industry works and what's possible and even what feature, you know, takes how long, you know, we, we, we have to scope things. We have to take business decisions into regard and things like that. So I feel at this point, I'm very conscious of how can I give my knowledge to other people the way that. I wish someone had given it to me back then. Mm. That's a that's a very nice and noble way of thinking, and I I really look forward to basically the the people already who you will inspire uh, and who you will teach, and that's actually whom just for the English majors <laughs> around here. <laughs> <laughs> I never finished it, so I can make this mistake. <laughs> it's fine. It's a formal language. It's a formal <laughs> podcast. We can use, we can break the grammar the way we want to. So, so what, what were some of your um, personal success stories and maybe also failure stories, if you have some off the cuff? Mm-hmm. Um. That's an interesting question because, you know, you would probably expect that when you say success stories, I would say, oh, I know this project that I launched and I was a creative director of. But I think my success stories are very day-to-day moments when maybe, you know, a decision that I have was very passionate and convicted about and had researched a lot and I knew that was the right decision actually came through and was approved and was implemented and then it showed good results so, you know, these are very minor incremental things, but I do celebrate them. Um, on the other hand, I, I consider success as people that I have mentored. For example, in, in one of the companies I worked in, I had 
a few junior game designers that came in and they were obviously very talented and very proactive people on their own. But also I had given them my mentorship, my advice, my critique maybe at, at certain points. And now that I look at where they are now, I'm glad, like, I'm very glad that, you know, I don't know how much of my contribution was out there, but I know that I did my best to help them believe in themselves, like maybe focus their decisions, focus their designs. So those are my success, like KPIs, just seeing this little tiny changes that probably no one else knows about, but I know that, you know, I cared about them. I put my effort and my thoughts into them and somehow they turned out okay. So I can sleep at night because of those. Hmm. And uh, what about the failures, if you don't mind? Yeah. Um, like, obviously, in this industry, especially in the mobile industry, like, I am completely okay at this point at killing projects, completely changing stuff. I just realize it's the nature of the business. Like, I have no personal attachment towards those things. Um, failure for me, again, is mostly when I fail my team, when I maybe fail to represent the values that I believe in, or if I fail to stand for the values I believe in. I mean, usually, if, especially in the mobile industry, you know, if we have a team, there might be some, let's say, individual differences, ideological differences regarding monetization, regarding the business model that we're pursuing, regarding uh, how considerate are we of our users. And from my experience, there's always some clashes. But I mean, it's a failure probably if we don't get the whole team on board on what we're doing and you know they do the work but they don't believe in it at all or or they think it's against their values so i consider those failures yeah i could follow that up with a lot but florian do you want to um finish the the current thread you're on and then yes actually yeah. the last point you finished on is perfect for uh one point that i wanted to ask you about which we also brought up in our pre-interview, but it's, it's like basically what you mentioned is the perfect segue into that about uh, you being a mobile game designer. And um, we had definitely different game designers here uh, on the podcast before, but nobody who is an exclusive mobile designer. Uh, we had somebody who runs a mobile game company, but design wasn't that big of a focus in that episode if I remember but yeah so um, tell us a little bit about the, um, your outlook on designing mobile games and how you see the landscape of mobile game design obviously monetization is always something that comes up uh, in that so yeah just some of your thoughts on that hmm. a very broad topic really I can maybe What do you think is a well-designed mobile game? Yeah, yeah. I look at mobile game design like I look at any game design, really. Like I look at any design. It has to be designed for the user it's intended to be designed for. And the thing that I've come across a lot in my career, especially working with other game developers, is that most of us had actually and are actually gamers. 
And that brings a lot of subjective experiences and biases and maybe even disillusions of what this game should be. Um, let's say we have a team of game developers that do play only hardcore games after work. So they want to bring in the same patterns. They want to ha- bring in the same experiences and the same game feel into the game they're making uh, during office hours. Probably the thing that isn't, uh, let's say, emphasized enough is that you're making a game for a completely different demographic that has no prior experience that may not understand this games the same way you have that may want more accessible, more simple experiences that even maybe they, they are very used to the patterns that are in other mobile games and they don't want your innovations that come from hardcore PC games. So I think uh, the largest struggle is always just having this vision uh, and communicating it to the team that you are making your games for a specific audience that you personally may not be part of, but you have to understand and you have to emphasize and you don't have to judge on you. You don't have to call them filthy casuals or you don't need to say that, oh, oh my God, they don't know what real gameplay is, which is like, I could quote you like hundreds of phrases I have heard, but I look at game design as I think I would look at any product that you're making. You're making it for a specific market, for a specific type of people, and you have to listen to those people. If you want to make a game for yourself, you should probably either go to a studio that makes games that are similar to your taste, or you should just do a passion project. At a workplace, you're making a product, and a product has a target audience. And that's a thing that I don't think gets emphasized enough in a very passion industry that we have in game dev. I think definitely, especially in indie development, I think there's a certain percentage of people starting studios or running studios not considering these kinds of well, business decisions in one on on one side, but obviously also design decisions, as you said. And there's always the basically you're making the game you would like to play, but how many games can you make that are like that and will still be played by others? Yeah, so. I, I I don't think that you know. It's a completely viable viable approach to make the game you you would like to play. And, you know, there's plenty of indie studios that operate on that model. You know, that there's five people gather who have this, you know, passion for this genre or this very specific niche. And they make the most amazing game and has a great community and it all works out. I just think that in the context of Lithuania, especially when it's a, let's say, the entry barrier to start, a game dev career, usually here, it's mobile gaming. And then, you you know, you have this person who wants to start a career in video games, but they want their first project to be like a, an MMO thing. Obviously, it's not going to happen. You have to learn how to make simple games first. So an easier, more accessible entry point is mobile gaming, unless you have a bunch of friends who want to pursue this uh, 
let's say, in the passion with you, then, you know, it's all good. But for most people and me, it didn't happen this way. I was also a very hardcore, a very PC console gamer. And, you know, I was applying for a job which I knew was a mobile free-to-play, which I kind of despised as a user. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as an employee and as a person who wants to grow in this industry and wants to eventually, you know, make business decisions, not just biased player decisions, I had to adopt a different mindset. And, you know, I, I, won't, I won't say that there were not ideological clashes at, at you know, at certain points, I was, I was very struggling against my point of view as a user, you know, when you think, oh, as a player, I would, I really hate this, like, it's the worst. But then I think, okay, as a person that needs to get the salary and the person who is to scale my business, this is the way. And, you know, finding the balance between the two, I think it's possible. And I think it's a goal we should all strive for, you know, the users are happy and we're scaling our business. But uh, if you're like an amateur game developer, it's very difficult to find that. And probably most of the times we will lean towards our passions and we will empath we will empathize and we'll put ourselves into the places of users a bit too subjectively, I think. And definitely, Ooh, hey, I I need to I need to say that this was the powerful stuff right there. Like I I, yes. I, I this is this is really important. The last two beats you you went on for everybody who um, uh, was listening to this, uh, they, you might want to listen to it again and skip back like two minutes because that that was that was so essential about so many things. What you just said that was. You can apply this to anything. It's like, hey, you know, you might love this, but you're probably not good enough to make the art you love, you know? Like, if mm -hmm. I want to start rapping today, like, I can't look at Eminem to bring that up again. I can't look at that, but I'm never going to make that. Besides the fact that what is my innermost um, art or thing that I make will probably turn out differently from Eminem, and that's a good thing. In the beginning, I can't even make what I'm supposed to make. You know what I mean? I'm not. I'm. I don't have the skills to make what I could make ideologically, and to split that. I and I believe that's what you said. Uh, correct me if I got something wrong. To split yeah. the ideology, the passion, the love from hey, you're a professional, and if you want to do something, you know, you you better do what you've got in front of you or what you're able to do. To split that seems necessary. Um, and it, that pertains to humility, um, re reality, and also the way of small steps, which at some point you will probably end up where you can make what you want or through that path, what you want to make may have changed. However, the way, um, yeah, there's one thing to what you love and what you're passionate about and one thing, what you can make in the moment. And there is yeah. a gap to bridge. And there's patience to be had. I think it's also a curse, you know, in the social media age where we see like so many success stories of like this indie game developers just making it their first game, absolute success. You know, they just nailed it. But, you know, what about all the stories that didn't nail it? And, you know, they failed like multiple times. Then maybe they just went to some AAA company, learned how to grind. And then, you know, five years later, they do make their indie game that 
seems so amateur, but it's not because it's the accumulation of all the years of the grindy experience of the processes of the boring stuff they had to learn somewhere else. So I think uh, it's also kind of an illusion, you know, there are, there are cases that do make it, you know, they start with indie and they nail it with indie, obviously. But at the same time, there's just not enough talk of how much grind it takes you to just realize how long it takes you to just release one feature, just to make a core loop, just to make a game that's, you know, responsive, that's just a no-brainer to anybody. So I think that's just not enough talk of how steep the learning curve actually is. Is uh, something like realism and down-to-earthness a Lithuanian quality? Because... Uh... I definitely hear some of that. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think it's more of pessimism and skepticism. Like <laughs> Something that, that these are good reframes yeah. for the same thing. But at the same time, even in my own community, I know a lot of people that they're making the first game or maybe their second game, and they have no interest of going into a company and working as an employee. They're quite happy enough just going it out themselves and just doing what they can and releasing their own indie game. And actually... I do see some progress and I see some success and, you know, I can only root for them. I just know that for me personally, my goals maybe are different and I enjoy learning from other people, which involves me, you know, working in a team, in a company. And I just think that that knowledge is exponential for me personally. So I, I, I just know if I was working on my own passion project, I would just completely go into perfectionist mode and would never release it. So I do need other people for reality checks or just to say, you know what, this is good enough. Let's just do it and see what happens. Yeah, awesome. That's my cue. Uh, but Florian, uh, still your thread. So if you want to finish something up, but yeah, got something. I've got something to start here. If you're, mm, yeah. yeah, one thought that I still had was that obviously while looking at the business side of things. And while I really often lean towards more uh, clearer look at things and not uh, being too romantic about your own game, um, I think that one thing you should not, not lose in a way is that inner child or that inner thought of making the game you want or like, also, I mean, still playing games as well, obviously. Uh, so that's always important. Uh, yeah, that was my last thought on this thread. Nice. Well, I've got something to bring up, like I've mentioned. Um, and uh, you just said it, Yeva, that you're interested um, maybe in in doing something of your own, but or, well... Everybody is probably, but um, it, you, if you would work on it alone, you would go into perfectionist mode, or you know. So, and and another uh, cue for that is uh, in your Twitter bio. It says "master overthinker," and you know these are things I relate to. So I really wanted to talk to you about that and okay. um, <laughs> look at this other side of it, this inner world, um, and well, you also mentioned imposter syndrome earlier. Maybe we can start there because I, I think imposter syndrome is a uh, often thrown around word and um, that's okay. I just would like to know what you personally, what that personally means to you. And uh, because mm -hmm. I think it 
has something to do with all of that, if I'm not wrong. So maybe you could start by explaining what that means to you. Okay. Um, I think what it meant to me at the beginning of my career is completely different to what it means to me now. Because like I said, I started with no formal degree or no prior experience in game dev. So obviously the imposter is like, oh, hello, I got hired. I'm going to learn my job as I do it. So, you know, it's natural that, you know, insecurities and everything crops up. But I think right now that I've been working in this industry for almost seven years, maybe the imposter comes up um, in different ways because uh, like I'm a very ambitious person, so I don't want to stay like at the same position. So now I want to be, you know, I want to be a game designer. I want to be like a senior game designer. I want to lead other game designers. Then I want to be a team lead. And, you know, I have other ambitions going up and you know as you level up let's say your imposter syndrome doesn't leave because you get new um reference points of what success should be and you know you kind of let's say get into this new level of uh, qualifications you should have for this job so i think it never really goes away unless you kind of are content to let's say maybe uh, stay as a for example, senior game designer and just like keep polishing your craft as a game designer, you know, optimizing ways you can be better at your specialization. But for me, it was always about mixing the skills of the specialization of game design, but also growing it with people and leadership and execution and business decisions. And, you know, as you go further, the imposter syndrome crops up again because there's always something you don't know or there's always some new challenge you encounter and then you think, okay, um, doesn't help also being usually the only woman on the, let's say, on the same level with other similar people in your position or maybe a board or maybe like an executive group Um you know, it, it, it's it's always easy to come to conclusions of why people interrupt you at meetings or why people forget things that you say or don't mind the things that you say unless someone else paraphrases it. It's, you know, it's easy to like just say, oh, you know, it's because I'm a woman, they probably don't listen to me. But I think there's multiple reasons for that. And I don't like to generalize it and just like put it all down to... I don't know, discrimination, even if people may not be aware of it. But I mean, it's always something in the back of my head that makes me feel like, you know, am I really qualified to be at the same table with these guys? Like, do I really know that much? But then I start, you know, sharing my decision and my knowledge. And I realize that, you know what, we all have just different experiences and we all complement each other. There's not there's not one person that knows more than the other. We just have different points of view. And that's amazing for our business, for our team, for our company, that we don't compete, we collaborate and we complement. So after adopting this mindset, I think my imposter syndrome kind of like uh, went to the background and I don't worry about it that much. Uh, I don't feel like I have to compete. I just think like we fill the gaps of each other's competences as we go. Mm. Oh, that's a good, very Zen mindset. That's very good, I think. Uh, well, 
good in the sense that it is certainly helpful, I think, to to overcome what you described. And by the way, I've heard that um, <laughs> that the the let's say larger you become in in your position, um, the more responsibility you take on. Um, yeah. Technically, the more imposter sh syndrome you should have, because you know, um, to give an extreme example, if you got the nuke button, then um, you're like, well, why why you're why should I be the guy or the woman who who yeah. has that uh, in in their hand, right? Like, what or, gives me the right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and that's good, right? So in in a in a way, like imposter syndrome is like um, definitely a, a thing that can fill you with fear, but um, It seems to be an important function to double check yourself before you wreck yourself and others. Um, so, Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so so it's not all bad, you know. This this imposter. It's like, yeah, yeah. Maybe you are an imposter, you know. <laughs> no, uh, in yeah, in the I, ex, in the extreme cases where you have a lot of responsibility, it's worth thinking about that. I think But, it also helps you to stay yeah. humble. Like yeah. I do appreciate that a lot. You know, I don't want to be yeah. like you know. Hello, I'm your lead, so I'm the authority, and everything I say is absolute objective truth. You yeah. know, I don't want that. We, like, we know we don't play that yeah. game like that. It's not not how we do it. Yeah, exactly. Do you actually know what helps with getting yourself like off this imposter syndrome for me? Go on. Updating my CV or <laughs> like looking at jobs and just like when you type a job application and have to like update what you've done over the last years. So like really taking stock of it at that moment, I always feel so amazed by myself. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I'm too full of myself, but like, I'm usually very down. Obviously like yeah. we all think we are all, I think in the same uh, category of, of, of overthinking and, and like having this imposter syndrome, but When I write like an application for something and I really want that job, man, I'm so happy that I am in this position of applying for this and like having to uh, tell people how well I would fit that or why they should give me that job. I always appreciate more what I've learned over the last experiences that I've been through. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And another thing, you know, in a way we also are imposters like that's also important because when you especially when you are a junior and you go into something and you really don't know that much right um you have to adopt a role kind of a persona um a, a mask uh an identity that that fits right so or um let's say this another way if you are the best game designer and you are you join a new company you still have to um hmm, adopt to the customs of the tribe you know like new mm -hmm. company new rules and um in a way that is you know you putting over that cloak or you know a flow story about lithuania you know you put over that lithuanian cloak you know you're like no no i i might not be from here but i know how to hang with this tribe or with this group or company, which is the more common name. And, um, well, you, you are im impost impostering, imposing um, this, this uh, you're, you're wearing the colors, right? And, um, of course, in the skills department, um, that's where, where it's worth thinking about, um, you know, I think that that's where it's crucial, where it's like, no, no, you actually have the skills. You are an all right designer or 
you are a good artist or you can write properly and blah, blah, blah. But um, yeah, impostering is also part of the job, <laughs> I suppose. Yeah. That's very true. Yeah, and so. you can't just bring like a hundred percent of your quote unquote authentic self. You know, you're working with a group of people. You have to, you know, be empathetic and you have to adapt yourself and maybe, you know, just push some things aside for the best, for the better of your team. And maybe, you know, sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. Sacrifice. Bit. I mean, mm you have to align with other, other people. You all have to do that, not just the lead, but like the whole team is in constant synchronization of, you know, what are, what common values and common, common visions for the game or even game development do we share and how can we capitalize on that? You know, put aside the differences, put aside, you know, if one plays very hardcore games and the other plays hyper casual in their times, it's not the point. It's, what do we share together as a team that we can, you know, push together into this whole ball of productiveness and then, you know, mm. just deliver a great product because mm. of the communalities that we have. Mm. Mm. Yes. Yes, indeed. Okay. So um, that's that. That's uh, the imposter out of the way. What about kind of the, this, this overthinkers club we've got going on. So it seems like um, we share a little bit of, um, and that seems to be a bit of a recurring theme amongst uh, uh, Flo and I and uh, the other nerds we interview here, <laughs> that people, <laughs> that people, um, yeah, have have a rich inner world. You know, then there's a lot going on, and there, there are many ways. And you know, the things that kind of stood out to me was like. Uh, when I read your Twitter, was a this um, overthinker table, which I thought was charming because I was like, "Hey, me too." And then mm -hmm. um, there's also this um, this lone wolf energy. This um, you made a tweet about living by your own metrics, you know, uh, mm -hmm. lead, leading yourself. Well, managing yourself, I think, is not as charming as as leading yourself. But yeah, like, um, and you mentioned it earlier in this episode too, kind of like. Oh, I guess I, I have to make it on my own. There's something there that's, I think, very powerful. There's something there that's a bit sad, you know? Yeah. Um, and, well, what about it? What's your feeling about it? And I'm happy to share, too. I would just like to start with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just like you said, it's a blessing and it's a curse. I think... Uh, most of my life, I have been a very independent and very individualistic person mm. that I had thought that, you know, if I do something, I have to do it on my own just so that I know that, you know, I'm capable of doing it because I had always felt like if I have to ask for help or if I have to ask for someone else to do it for me, that means, you know, I'm somehow incapable or, you know, I have to be better at something or I'm just like winging it. So achieving things on my own, I think give, gave me always a sense of security that I'm progressing, that I have reached a certain milestone and I have learned something and now I can go further. Like having this confidence that I can do it no matter what, no matter if people stay with me, if people leave me, if Whatever team I work with, I know that I have the confidence in myself that I can carry it. 
So I think that has given me a lot of strength and that has allowed me in a way to progress my career quite a bit. But at the same time, I think it has caused me plenty of overthinking and plenty of anxiety and at certain points, maybe burnouts where I just want to, you know, things to uh, always lean on me. You know, if there's a problem, it's probably my fault. Or if there's a problem, you know, I'm the one that will fix it. Don't worry, guys. I'll just set everything back into its places. It will be fine. You just, you know, you just relax. I'll take over the pressure. I'll take over the work and I'll just make things happen. So, but I think it's been very important for me just to have the stability and this belief that I can do it. And, you know, no matter if other people around me slack or if they abandon the project or if they stop believing in the vision, I can always carry it forward. Like it's, it's a blessing and a curse, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And there, there's, that's the, I think there's a lot, lot there about kind of, um, you said the word, um, uh, it's like the danger of being alone or the fear of being alone and therefore um, choosing to be alone, you know, kind of like mm -hmm. I might as well, might as well make my own choice to, to do that. And, yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, can get very personal, but I'm wondering why that is, you know, it's like, is that a growing up thing or is that uh, having experienced something uh, unfortunate thing that there's kind of this lingering fear or I don't know if you want to talk about that, what mm -hmm. do you think that is for you? I think in a way it has been that, you know, because of my hobbies and maybe my, I don't want to say like way of thinking because it's obviously not any, any kind of unique way of thinking. I'm not like a philosopher or like an outcast in the society, but you know, most of my life I had always felt like with my hobbies, especially I, Usually, you know, just like single player it because I have obviously no girlfriends to play games with. I mean, now I'm very happy for the new generation because there's like plenty of girls playing it. If, if you want to find that tribe, you will. But like back in my day, I wouldn't. Like the boys wouldn't play with me because, you know, oh, ew, girl, cuties. And maybe <laughs> she, she hasn't got the skills. So it was very hard. And I just realized, you know, if I want to play games or if I want to like, I don't know, build custom Warcraft maps, I just do it by myself in my room. There's no one else to help me, advise me, feedback me on it. And I think that kind of also built my personality. And as, as I went to high school, I would always like also li listen to this like niche music that I thought no one else understood. And, you know, okay, I'll listen to this obscure band from Bandcamp that no one knows. And again, mm -hmm. finding my tribe was very difficult. So what do you do mm -hmm. then? You try to make it on your own. You build your own, you know, shell. You build your own foundation and just like keep on pushing forwards, have your own ambitions. Consider that possibly no one's going to help you along the way. So you kind of adapt this mindset that, you know, if there's people that are going to join me, that are going to join my community, that are going to join my goals, that are going to align with me, help me, support me, awesome. But I always have to control the situation that if there aren't any, I'm just going to be completely fine. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just been my track through my whole life and still going like that, honestly, to this day. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and so... Yeah, and there's something so strong in that, you know, I, 
it's um and and frustrating right there's always these two yeah. things it's like you're you know all this cool stuff but you um yeah sometimes you don't have people to share it with but and then but then there's also this <laughs> this own self-induced thing you know it's like well i'm special you know and i'm gonna know you know you know know this cool stuff and then oh yeah why do why doesn't nobody else know it you know that's kind of lame and then it's like yeah but i don't want anybody to know it because it's my special stuff you know there's something self-isolating going on oh absolutely i think you know it's not because of the environment or because of other people i think my own loneliness is always induced mostly by me by me like Mm -hmm. oh i'm in (laughs) this existential crisis that you know nobody else will understand if i tell them so i just will not tell them (laughs) even even though i know that if i will tell them they'll just say yeah that's life that's how i feel like Second day, no, you, you couldn't no, possibly understand. But my crisis is so unique, you know, this existential dread and game depth stuff. <laughs> Nobody can possibly. Yeah, it's really funny. And I do realize, like, I embrace that I like self-loathing sometimes. And it's fine. You know, I listen yeah. to my depressing music. I'll drink my whiskey. Yeah. And I'll get, go to work the next day feeling absolutely awesome. Like, I enjoy these (laughs) moments of loneliness and I don't need to share them with anyone. But at the same time, I think uh, what I do block is maybe help from other people where I Mm. think, you know, maybe there's someone that could mentor me or maybe there's someone I could help ask for help, let's say, in work situations or elsewhere. But when I do ask them for mentorship and they do tell me my vision, I usually go like, yeah, that's fine, but you know, I think otherwise, or (laughs) I know of a better way. And then, you know, you end up sounding like this, I ask for help, but I don't really want your help because I know better, which is also a thing that I'm struggling with. Like, I asked you for help, but I just want to tell you my opinion. Yeah. 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 yeah, It's it's horrible. I just need to know. I just need to check with somebody else whether I'm right. And (laughs) if you say something, and that sounds probably wrong to me, then I'm happy because I'm still right. Um, but not really um, all the richer. So yeah, I thank you for sharing that. I yeah. think it's very funny and, and intimate. And well, I, I just have the same. I, I think that's why we can laugh about, look at us sharing our loneliness. Um, yes. And uh, yeah, I, w- I also want to, well, hmm, well, if anybody else <laughs> feels like this, right? This is the this is part of the reason why we would share it at all. It's like I think there are maybe uh, two, three interesting threads we could go down, and uh, we will also have to wrap up at some point. But so one would be okay. How 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 do we make use of this um, way of being? Like because I think there's a lot of inner world to be managed. You know, I think it's not easy to um to hmm, to live like that to because there's also a lot of ideas in this inner space that are not easy to bring out because that's kind of the there's the self contentment right with yeah. with the ideas so why would i you know share it? so that's one thing how do we manage the space and then maybe uh and maybe that goes hand in hand there's also okay but you know okay we can be content with it. Maybe that's another thing, being content with the space. But then there's also a moving beyond it because I think 
uh, well, this is predates a conclusion a little bit here or pre-assumes one. But I think for me, um, as somebody who also has this, well, there is, um, well, I think I, I want to be different or I want to add something to this, right? I, I know I am like that in a way, but I also do want to connect. Like I have this big wish to to uh, connect. So maybe we can uh, discuss th these uh, three points um, about, about this and then um, wrap up. So maybe we can start with, uh, well, how do we manage... Um, that, like you said, said music, whiskey, and going to work feeling like a million bucks seems about right. Are there any other things that you do to um, bring your this inner world, this turmoil, uh, in order? Mm. Or to channel what? it? Maybe yeah. it doesn't need to be in order. Yeah. I don't know. I think, uh, I think at this point, I have a very clear idea that. You know, I have the day job where I'm professional, where I'm business driven, where I'm driven by giving my best to my team and my project. And, you know, I don't allow like existential dread or my own subjectivities to creep into it. But all I know is that when I make my passion project post my working hours, it is going to be driven by that. Because <laughs> I do believe that, you know, my game is not going to come from, oh, I had such a lovely, happy day. It's going to you know, it's going to come from the depths. It's going to come from existential crap and it's going to come from my anxieties and my experiences. And I want my passion project to come from that. Yeah. So I think I just channel these two personalities that I have into completely different uh, times of the day. And mm. I'm completely fine with that. But we're mm. still talking about game projects, not cocktail projects, right? Because well, that, that overlaps. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, into cocktails, it does channel as well. But like I said, at this point, I have reached, like, people have given me way too many expectations of what my next cocktail can be. So I'm just, like, in constant uh, procrastination right now because I'm, like, the expectations are too high. I should set something on fire and then, you know, have snow falling on it at the same time. And then, you know, flavors should change every three sips. It's, mm. yeah, it's the kind of expectations right now that's existential cocktail dread yeah yeah okay so there's a compartmentalization kind of okay let's put this part here this part here and um find balance in in, in weighing things differently um and i think one thing we also talked about previously was writing you know there's something about um writing out your ideas uh, you know sometimes ideas that kind of um that reach ahead, that reach a, pla a place, you know something is this way, but you can't, well, immediately explain why that is. You just know it's right, you know, but that doesn't fly, obviously. So there is something about writing as well to be like, well, let me see if I can um, uh, reel in this fast mind and make it a step-by-step -step situation, whether that's a project you want to make or where you can kind of have, see this goal in mind, but you don't know uh, where to put your foot next, kind of. Or whether it's something at work, you know, a design decision or something. Um, there's something about writing things down that kind of sets the pace and that disallows you to um, be so 
uh, well, all-knowing, you know, which is also an alone, aloneness generator um, to know everything better. That's what you just talked about. Is that something you have experience with, with writing? Hmm. Um, yeah, when I think about writing, I also probably like split it into, like I'm a big believer in documentation when you have the luxury to document things during development. Um, I think because it helps you finally put your thoughts on paper. And then when you read it as a user, as the reader, you get a completely different point of view on the things. You start tweaking the words, maybe even changing the synonyms, thinking of how should I communicate this idea to my team? And, you know, what started off as a very abstract idea in your head actually becomes a very contained and very structural game design document. So I'm always up for that. But then at the same time, I believe in words as means to inspire people, to put them in a different mindset. Either it's mm. a, like a role-play mindset or a dreamer's mindset. You know, that's why all the great pitches usually have not only great visuals, not only great prototypes, but really great concise and very thought through sentences really so you know if you have the luxury to put your thoughts into words and put them on paper just get them out of your head i would always advise for it yeah damn right mm -hmm. um okay and and what about um oh flo anything to add here Did we mention crying already to let out everything out? <laughs> no. no, sorry. Yeah. No, actually, sarcasm. Work. To be <laughs> yeah. in the, if people listen to this podcast regularly, which I know there are like two of you, I guess, <laughs> uh, then they will know that at this point, Simon always asked the very deep question, and I tend to make fun, just like I did now. But actually, the sarcasm part is also a way to deal with these things. So here, I am self-aware. Yes. Thank you, Meta Man. Um, no, it, it, that is good. Um, humor good, laughing good. And uh, second point, contentment, you know, content, being content, not only managing it, but also being like very uh, peaceful, accepting um, and um, maybe even happy about uh, the state of things what what is something is there something you learned Eva in finding this piece hmm. uh, the one thing I've learned is that I'm never content <laughs> <laughs> is that like okay I've done this so what's next okay so I've learned this so okay there's like tons of things that I still don't know you know the more you know the more you understand that you don't know that's all, also a curse that also applies to game dev, you know. Oh, so games are made very easily. No, try a prototype. You'll realize how much it takes and what else is there. So, you know, I wish I could uh, be more, f I get forgiving or celebrate my tiny victories, but like I'm the type of person who just like completes the thing and then it's like, okay, what's next? What's next? What's the next challenge? Where we go from, where we go from here? okay, maybe I did a good job here, but like I could have done better. And what's the next thing? And where we go from there? 
So I think my contentment is just knowing that there's more to learn, more to do, and more to aim for. And as long as it's there, I'm content. And what about setting your own metrics? I brought that up earlier. You mentioned mm -hmm. it on your Twitter. What, what's, uh, what does that mean for you? <sighs> okay. I think for me, it means that it's very difficult, even at, especially at points that you don't feel like the best or you don't feel the most confident. So you start to lean maybe towards more the established models of what success is. Um, maybe in terms of having stable jobs or having very linear lifestyles, maybe having just a stable family, not, not having ambitions, not trying to think maybe there's something else out there. Maybe there's a way for me that's more unique to what I feel of what I would deeply want to do. So I think it's very difficult to set those metrics where you're living in a constant like stream of lifestyles and like lifestyles that are acceptable, lifestyles that are praised, liked, preferred. And then you think, you know, I have this very niche game that things and I make these stupid cocktails and I don't know, I like these obscure things and I have these friends that have all sorts of insecurities, you know, is that like a desired lifestyle? Is that, am I doing something wrong? And then you realize that, you know what, you have to set those KPIs. Maybe my KPI is having this crazy, constantly changing game, game dev career where there's never any stability because it's all evolving. And maybe it's having my weird ass friends, which are ridden with insecurities, but that's how we connect and that's how we build bonds. And maybe this is my success. Yeah. And, you know, there's also this thing that I call values as per behavior. So when you try to figure out how, oh, well, which is what I, I've done a lot, what, what's a good life, you know, what's a good life. And then you listen to a hundred podcasts of, various people and you're like oh, okay so there are ways to do things really well you know and then sometimes that becomes a really dreadful experience and then it's like why you know trying to make things better and it's like well better by whose standard and it's like okay yeah. right that's an important question right and then it well and then i was like okay well what if i don't look ahead in time and say oh how do i want to be um, which is definitely part of it. Like, don't get me wrong that, that there is a way to ask yourself, who do I want to be and to design yourself a little bit. But then there's also a way of looking back of like, okay, how have I always things done? What are my tendencies? If I'm left alone, what do I do and what do I like? And um, that's the other side. That's the, that's the, there's also this thing is like, um, well, if you wonder what, somebody's intentions are check which results they generate mm -hmm. and then inf just say well that's their intentions as well which can be pretty mean because some people kind of mess stuff up <laughs> didn't swear on that one um and well then it's like well okay is that what you want but yeah may maybe it is right and well and and, and you know this is a, a, a spiel on contentment because yeah. 
if you you if you stop arguing with yourself, well, we should do this. I think should is really a terrible word. Word, you know, nobody should ever use it. Um, and uh, <laughs> you uh, you say, ah, oh, I should do this. I should do that. It's like, well, how about you look at what you did and then see what you did and then see if you can be happy with that and see if you want to do more of that because even despite all the shoulds, there's a undercurrent of things you do anyway, you mm -hmm. know, to get through the day. And that's, that's usually where you can find a lot out about yourself. So, and that by that you could set some metrics, maybe, you know, that's what I've done a little bit. It's like, yeah, no, you know, I, I just don't do it that way. Even if there's a part of me that's trying to tell me, but our life would be better. Like, no, it's not going to happen probably. Okay, fine. Right. I think that's kind of what you said as well. That's very true. Yeah. So I, I call it values as per behavior. And I've written this down sometimes. And I'm like, well, if you just look at who you are and what you like, what would your values be? And then maybe that's probably them. And that's a nice exercise to, to go through. And then you can be like, oh, yeah, it's this guy or this girl. She's doing that. We know it, you know. And there's not so much uh, disconnect or, um, yeah. Whatever. Yeah, yeah uh, that, that's a very great exercise for those evenings where I'm making my existential passion game and listening to my obscure music. Yeah. yeah One thing can... to add. Yeah. Yeah, obscure music gang shout out because it's yeah. been mentioned the second time now. Yeah. Just saying. Actually, it's not obscure. I just like to think it is, but it yeah. is so not obscure. So, so what, what's, your, what's your favorite kind of obscure band or whatever you have? Oh, what, what are you into? You know what? I had this phase. I think it was my like master unit days where I would have this uh, routine every weekday from midnight to 2 a.m. I would go onto Bandcamp and I would search for the most obscure bands in kind of my genre framework. What's the genre had, framework? Sorry. Um, at that point, I was very into like this like hardcore punk, but like. Um, very fast, very existential songs under one minute, full of angst, full of hatred, oh. full of yes, like, yes, what is this somewhere. I, I just want to hear the bands. Yeah. Now, obviously, they're too obscure, you know, you won't know them. Oh. I, I might know some of them. I might know some of them. Uh, not the Bandcamp ones, but the general genre sounds like very grindcore-y. No, no, no. I mean, in terms of music, like someone asked me at work the other day, like, oh, so yeah, you're new. So what type of music do you like? And I realized that it's a very difficult yeah. topic for me yeah. to explain because yeah. like in a nutshell, I do enjoy like a very yeah. broad range of music. I just tend to cherry pick, let's say the tones or like the chord progressions or maybe even the like lyrical themes that appeal to me. And they're usually not very happy. They're very yeah. like... Yeah. Yeah, they met. They're quite yeah, sad. Yeah. But like I have this um I think uh, because why I like things like Joy Division because I think like most of the art that I enjoy is not brought from happy feelings. It's usually brought yeah. from crisis and Same. angst and frustration and anxiety and just general just like discontent with the world and capitalism and whatever and that mm -hmm. is why I was always into this scene that was very outcasty yeah. and you know the the irony is that you go into the scene hoping that you will connect with those people because yeah. they're so yeah. outcasty but because because of that they're like outcasty uh, double 
the outcastiness. Yeah. So they have their own shells and you try to connect them and there's nothing because they don't let you in. And then you bond during the gig, but afterwards you're all these like emotionally unavailable people. <sighs> it's complicated. It is. And I think game dev has quite a few of the same patterns. Like there's much introversion, much social anxiety and like yeah. we kind of bond, but at the same time we keep our distance so very much. Yeah. Oh, so funny. Florian, what's your, um, Existential dread music. It's so obscure you wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> but the only correct answer. But oh course, my god, look at us emo kids. Okay, course, okay. If if they cutting my fringe. If they wear insect costumes to the concerts, then it's always a plus. Is they if what? <laughs> if they were? If they were insect costumes. On stage, then it's always. Okay, a I'm class. sorry, that's too obscure. <laughs> okay, see? Oh, so funny. Oh, so funny. Okay, um, okay, I, I'll just be the PG person here. And I, I really love this band called Element of Crime. It's like a German uh, yes. band, very songy. Um, and and they, they have this, they perfectly transport this Berlin bleakness in their songs. And I've been listening to them since I was five or six. And that's not music for a five or six year old, but for me, you know. And um, <laughs> so you were the kid. You were the kid that was thinking about post Soviet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I was right there as a kid. Oh my God. The existential struggle. Yeah. Yeah. You thought I was joking, but you got me. Yeah. Oh my God. Listening to chord progressions, waiting for like, oh man, he didn't hit that note. Yeah. <laughs> And, oh, man, I got to figure this shit out. Oh. <laughs> okay, we've hit the threshold. This episode will oh, end. Profanity yeah. filter. S all out there. Got to mark the episode. Bleep it oh, all out. Bleep everything. Uh, one time, Yeva bleeped herself in this episode. Powerful yes. stuff. Yes. Yeah. Um, I so I have a I have a third thing, and then we can get into wrapping up. So th Because the third thing, and this is what you mentioned with the... Uh, well, with the music, right? It's like the, oh, well, you know, do we have music in common? Well, technically, yes, but emotionally, no way. And, <laughs> and that is like the, the third thing that I'm wondering about and that I want to ask you about as well. It's the, well, okay, so here we are, lone, lonely emos um, in whatever field we're in. Um, well, but, but there is a way beyond, right? There is a way to to actually um, create um, connection and uh, um, hmm, maybe not only let's say in a work context because I mean working together is the is a very good connection tool but maybe you know there is a way to make art and to share these innermost feelings and to because people do relate to it and you know maybe in like Klartext and clearly spoken words, like in a podcast, it's a bit like, yeah, I get it. But then again, it's a bit obscene to talk about it so directly. But in a poem or in an art form or in some writing, it's um, much more, well, that's how you actually connect because you create, you bundle it in a feeling yeah. and then you're, you're not so on the nose with it. Um, well, how do we feel about that? Is, is there a way? Um, what do we want to do to 
breach the shell a bit voluntarily from the inside. I don't know. Be more vulnerable. Be more. Give more interfaces for connection. Um, you know, I don't know. That's what I'm thinking about. What, what do I, we think about? That? I think it's a very organic. Even like just because we grow older and we kind of shift our values. You know, back in the day we would like, oh, you like the same bands. So, oh, you like the same game. Okay, you're my best friend now. You know, at this point, we're just looking for maybe shared values that emerge from those interests that we share. So it's not so much as in, do you know the latest album of whatever? It's more of like, do you believe in the things they speak? Do you believe this is the way to make games? Do you believe in uh, we should represent this or that in our games and our products and whatever media we're making? And I think we learn to find people that do connect on that kind of level instead of like just finding shallow titles or, 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 you know, having, sharing the same gig, share, playing the same game and match, but, you know, finding the people that have these very deeply rooted core motivations that we have, it's very difficult, especially <laughs> I can say in, in small country like Lithuania and even a smaller game dev community, for example, I am very driven by narrative design. And I do believe that, the games that I would like to make would be would explore issues and would put a lot of focus on narrative. I had struggled to find people that do think this would be their primary motivation in creating their game in Lithuania. So I guess it's a reason I have never made a game that's very driven and very focused on that. But I do believe in the future I will. And, you know, that's what I think of. I just need to find the same values. Have you ever spoken with Lea Schönfelder? No. Maybe you should. She's uh, was a guest on this podcast. Florian probably knows her better. I'm, I was just the interviewer here, but she makes um, uh, narrative game designs also very focused around women. Um, I think mm. maybe you okay. guys want to chat. Just a little side note. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, well, I think, yeah, I think that's it. Right. I think it's, I mean, for me, it's making art, right. And through that finding your tribe, I think that's where we started with, because that's the part of the point. It's like, Oh, I've got no tribe. I don't know. Maybe I have too many complex interfaces and it, I usually, wherever I end up in, um, I get, yeah, poked somewhere or I poke somebody and then, uh, I'm an outcast again, you know, it's like, I can only ever be a guest and be like polite. And when somebody asks me, Oh, what music do you like? I'm like, yeah, I'm really into, um, Britney Spears, you know her? And then it's like, Oh yeah, me too. And then you connect. And of course, Britney Spears isn't too bad, but there's also a lot of other things. I just say what connects, but that's of course not the true way, you know? And, uh, nobody yeah. who really listens to the right music would ever just ask this question, you know, you're throw each other hidden signals and uh, <laughs> yeah and send and so each other like bootleg lps and see exactly. if the other recognize it because you accidentally they don't, drop a tape on the floor and it's like oops that's yeah. my uh, obscure hardcore <laughs> punk tape <laughs> yeah and um well yeah okay so yeah that's my thought you know it's like and, and uh, well that's what i'm pursuing too well but it's a really hard push to go to um the place of like, oh, let's, I really want to make my own thing, you know? And hmm. do you know what I've also found out mm. during this last two years that I don't think of people like, 
oh, I know this very nice game dev professional. He knows development very well, or he's a great artist. I would love to make a game with him. Now, it's usually like, I have spoken to this random person for so long. I absolutely love his drive. I love his ambition. I love yeah. his outlook on life. I love his values. I should probably convince him to make a game with me. Whoever he is, right? Or yeah, I don't care if they yeah. even play, but like, I just want to mm. bring his brain into oh a gamified experience. Yes. Yes, that's exactly it. That's one of my big solutions too. I notice I can't do anything on my own. I have to collaborate. Um, I get. I have so little uh, energy on my own. For some things, I do have energy, but um, for making a work, um, a piece of work, uh, I, I, I have none. And uh, so, so, one of the things that is happening to me is I've just started uh, weaving this narrative. You, that's what it is. You weave things together, whoever you are, and then whatever your two skill sets are, or whatever, or three, or how, however many you are that um, becomes what it will be. And so everything you touch will always be somewhat of a game because you're a game designer by mm -hmm. trade or maybe not and you will just be a writer or whatever else you can do, right? Or a, But w w whatever is asked in the project, right? But so your essence can be in very many different things. You could make a movie um, and it's it has something gamey to it or whatever, you know, and... Uh, but the wrapping, how your essence is wrapped, the product, that can be anything. And that really depends on the people who put their heads together. And for me, that's been the big solution. It's like, okay, just don't try to do any work alone. Just always try to sit with people and have have somebody, you know, pour their juice into the common productivity cauldron as well. And then something can happen. Um, yeah. And and one on, for me it's one on one, uh, a, a lot. I I get along with people one on one really well, and um, yeah. And I think as that progresses, the groups can get bigger. But for me, that's of the last two years. Yeah, that's a big big win, as well. A magic trick, a little cheat. Uh, so get. what it boils down to is we should bring in more people not gamers, not from game development, but just like great minds, awesome visionaires, or maybe yeah. just random people who are vulnerable enough to share what they have to, and we can gamify it, I hope, for the best for everyone. Yeah. Yeah, just, and it's also, for me, it also means, uh, it means for me bringing the two previous points we made into this. It's like, well, know how you can work and then know how to be content. And then you, you kind of get this groundiness uh, and you're not so, you don't have this outcast identity. You're more like, and then you catch the vibe of other people. And then you're like, yo, this person is vibing really well or in a cool way. Like, what's going on here? You know, can we do something or can we be friends? You know, and uh, it doesn't have to be about music or anything. It can be about, how you speak to each other, it can be anything. Um, Absolutely, yeah. And 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 I think, yeah, that's that's the art of finding, you know, kind of special people for you, whoever they are for you. And then, uh, oh, we can do something together. Nice. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. That seems to be the way to out from. And it's yeah, it's kind of, for 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 some people. This is like, well, duh, you know, just have some friends. But it's like, yeah. 
depends on who you are. It can be a bit difficult. So yeah, yeah, especially when usually like it's human nature not to look friends outside your own comfort zone, interest zone, social circle. And once you do, you are you can be really pleasantly surprised that you know this group that you thought was so alien to you actually has a lot of things in common and brings you a whole new perspective on your art and on whatever you do in life. So I think it's very, very healthy to like step into a completely different um, interest zone. Even it's like if this music genre you thought you so hated, but then you went to this concert and you met so awesome, such great people who just like were really passionate about the genre you hated. Yeah. And suddenly you have this great connection with them and you know, there are no boundaries anymore. I think yeah. it's the same with games dev. you know, we do have s still so much like elitism and so much division, like, oh, you know, who plays what kind of games and where are the thresholds where you are hardcore or you're just like casual or whatever, like, as an industry, we're trying to blend these lines, but in the real world, they still do very much exist. So, you know, just stepping out as gamers, I think, into each other's spheres will also give us empathy and just we'll find new friends to play with, to yeah. build games with. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, this kind of jousting and uh, joggling can be fun. Um, it, it's part of the game, you know, tribes will always be like, hey... Screw you guys mm -hmm. over there. No. Um, but yeah, but if it's in fun, that's okay. Um, if it, uh, Where it's serious, where it's about connection, an open mind seems to work the best. Um, <laughs> so also good to go into these new experiences you describe with an open mind and not like, yeah, but secretly I have the best music taste. Happens to me all the time. I have to be honest. I'm sometimes like, oh yeah, these people are really nice. I bet their music sucks. <laughs> yeah, I love you guys, but I'm off to go my own stuff that's better. <laughs> yeah, just go and drink some whiskey. Okay. Hey, man, this is fantastic. I, I haven't had such a long conversation about this in, in a long time. Um, thank you for this. Thank you for sharing this. Thank you guys for inviting me. It's been a very refreshing, very informal. Like, I'm even quite uncomfortable with how informal it was, but I think it's for the best. Okay. Um, yeah, well, we, we do have these quick fire questions, but I have this feeling that, that the energy is out. I, th I have a feeling we're done and I'm not today. We're not sticking to any rules. So if everybody's okay with that, um, yeah, I would leave it at where we are. Yeah. 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 Well, I know that when you said like 10 minutes ago, I think that's it. That was when I thought that was it for the episode, but you started a whole new tangent and then, Yeva made so many good points that I couldn't be mad about it. So, yeah, quick fire questions or no, I'm good with it. Out, out, out the window with that. Um, where can people find you? Uh, we said in the beginning of the episode, but uh, where do you want people to add you, follow you, uh, read you, whatever? <clears throat> well, I, guess, I think the because I'm very... Like most of my life is about my career. So I think LinkedIn is the best way just to add me and, you know, shoot me a quick message. I do have the blog that you mentioned at first, which is pqbytes.com. Uh, I think if you Google like Red Dead Redemption or Zelda game cocktails, you'll just find me naturally. Mm -hmm. um, 
I do have an Instagram and a Twitter, but that's all Googleable. Just like search my name. But yeah. Cool. Very cool. Well, thank you so much and see you very soon. Thank you so much. Thanks everyone for listening. Thank you, Eva. Bye-bye. Bye. Hi there, Simon here. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like what you hear here and you would like to hear more here, feel free to follow or to subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you get your audio fix. We appreciate you and we promise you to bring you many more insightful conversations with fantastic games industry guests from Berlin and from all over Europe. Thank you very much and see you very soon. Bye-bye. Hi there. Before you go, this is Florian, Project Manager for Gamesnet Berlin Europe. If you want to stay connected to the network, find out more about upcoming events and links to other MediaNet initiatives, you can visit us at gamesnetberlin.eu and subscribe to our newsletter. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast and until next time.